You don't have gills, I promise. How tall would a sequoia's house have to be? I wouldn't be opposed to diapering birds. You're literally the one person on earth who can prevent forest fires. Somehow it always comes back to vines. Pollens are the real flower children. Earthquakes are tantrums, ignore them. Most animals have not been photoshopped. Why not put a third A at the beginning of Aardvark? So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the 24th episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent, and Out of All Doors is a podcast. Let's leave it at that. There are so many places you can find out what it's about other than this introduction. But an introduction exists to tell people what the thing they're about to experience is. If you don't want to introduce the podcast, just don't have an introduction. That's my impression of you at your absolute whiniest. So, November, right? Did you like it? Did you feel like it went fast? These are just a few examples of inane questions one might ask someone else about November, and one of them barely qualifies as a question. We can do better. We must do better. And we here at Out of All Doors are here to help. Here are a few examples of questions you can ask someone else about November that are not inane. Number one. What do you wish your greatest enemy understood about how you see November? Number two. What's the most November thing that ever happened to you in a month other than November? Number three, under what conditions would you name your daughter November if your daughter were already 22 years old and named something else? Number four, do you know what they call November in Washington State? Answer, November. Number five, if you could surgically remove one day from November, which one would it be and why? Number six, Did you feel like it went fast? Number seven. I saw Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving was even over. This is not a question, technically. Number eight. How often do you even think about November when you're not living inside of it? Number nine. What are some things that people probably said during the November of 1921? And number ten. Did you feel like it went fast? So... There are 10 stimulating questions to ensure that your retrospective conversations about the month we're just now leaving are interesting, compelling, and fun for everyone involved. My one other piece of advice would be to not ask any question you don't already know the answer to, like a good journalist, which is to say, like all journalists, because all journalists are good and the phrase good journalist is redundant. Okay, let's move on to part two of this introduction. This is the portion where we'll discuss Thanksgiving, a holiday that many associate with the month of November in the outdoors, as I've probably explained in the past. We usually give Thanksgiving a fair amount of attention on the November episode, but this one's coming out well after the holiday is over, so we aren't going to live in the past. That said, there's never a bad time to say what we're thankful for, right? So let's have another little list here of things that every out-of-all-doorsman and out-of-all-doors woman should be thankful for. Number one, apples. Crisp, delicious, and healthy, apples are always there for us, whether tucked into our sack lunches by doting mothers, plucked fresh from a tree in lovely weather, or looming menacingly at the foot of our deathbed like the monolith at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Number two, potatoes. This popular tuber has never let us down and never will. Some say the potato's reputation benefits from low expectations, but those people usually end up dumped in shallow graves and forgotten by history. Number three, sweet potatoes. Look, I don't like them, but other people do, and we should be thankful for anything that might make someone feel good enough about their life that they delay deploying their nuclear payloads for one more day. And yes, some of those nukes might be aimed at your apartment building. Number four, mashed potatoes. Definitively proves the controversial point that everything is better when it's mashed into a shapeless mass with the texture of paste. Number five, potato bug. Whether this bug eats potatoes or looks like a potato, we should be thankful for the vital role it probably plays in whatever ecosystem it lives in. The same is true for the potato bird and the potato wolf, if they exist. Number six, potato gun. These are so fun. All you need is a piece of PVC pipe big enough to stuff a potato into. A potato. Uh, 
I think some hairspray. Probably a source of fire. Uh, maybe a laser pointer stuck to the top so you can pretend it has a laser scope. A broomstick. And six tiny springs from an antique pocket watch. And a big helping of thankfulness. Number seven, potato apple. This theoretical hybrid will easily knock the apple off of the top of this list if it ever gets made. Number eight, Mr. Potato Head. Not bad for a toy that, when it first came out, retailers claimed no one would ever be thankful for. Number nine, Mrs. Potato Head. Well, we all know the story. After retailers claimed no one would ever be thankful for Mr. Potato Head and were proved wrong, the pendulum swung the other direction and retailers declared that Mrs. Potato Head would top every list of things people were thankful for. Yet here she sits at number nine, behind even Mr. Potato Head. Never trust a retailer. And number ten, Yam. Look, something had to go in the 10 spot. It came down to either yam or freedom of religion, and I flipped a coin. But that's the end of the list of things we should all be thankful for, and that's the end of the intro. Let's begin, shall we? Say it with me, Grang. What? Say what? Are we recording? Uh, well, you're the one with the recording equipment, Drent, so shouldn't I be asking you that if, if we're recording? I mean, are we recording? <laughs> All right. Forget it, Grang. Yes, we're recording. It's been five months since I've heard from you. I have to imagine that you have a lot to report, although... I'm going to go out on a limb and predict none of what you have to report will be the login information for my uh, long-lost Out of All Doors blog. Oh, you're right, Duran. It has been quite an eventful few months, that's for sure. And while you're correct in your prediction that I haven't yet acquired the login information for the Out of All Doors blog, you're actually wrong to have predicted it because, given how close I am to getting it, predicting that I do have the password would actually have been a much better prediction. Well, um, that's an interesting perspective, but I guess when it comes down to it, I'd rather be wrongly correct than rightly incorrect. I, maybe that makes me stupid, I don't know. No, no, Drench, you're not stupid. And speaking of how you're not stupid, I know you won't be stupid enough to pass up my new segment idea. It's called Man vs. Wild vs. Child. Grant, how many times are you going to make me shoot down this same terrible idea? Now, listen, Drent, it's different now because the child mentioned in the title is my own child, Timothy. I have a son now, Drent, and he will be perfect for Man vs. Wild vs. Child. When I asked Megan if he seems like he'd be a good survivalist as well as an entertaining podcaster, she said, well, we'll have to wait and see. So he's really right on track, considering his age. Grang, what, what do you mean you asked Megan if he, if he seems like it? I mean, this... Please don't tell me this means you haven't seen your own son yet. Well, I haven't gotten the password yet, Drent. I can't abandon my mission to meet my son. What would that teach him about dedication? You know me, Drent. You know that I believe that dedication is the single most important trait a man can have. So what kind of father would I be if the first thing Timmy learned about me is that I only think dedication is important up until the second something happens that challenges that dedication? That would be terrible parenting. I wouldn't be able to look Tim in the eye if I showed up to welcome him into the world without having acquired the login information. Whereas once I do get the login information, I'll be able to rush home and meet him in triumph. And my infant son will meet a father that he can revere. And this will all happen very soon because I just got arrested and now I'm awaiting trial. Well, this is a new wrinkle, and uh, and possibly the worst turn of events that you've tried to pitch as a success so far. Why did you get arrested instead of attending to your newborn child? Uh, are you still helping that other worse Adam campaign for the school board? And you don't you don't still have that terrible fat pet crow, do you? It's a bit of a long story, Drent, but the good news is that other than the fact that I finally managed to get arrested, I do still have Theodore Roosevelt, and while he is still overweight, he isn't and never has been terrible. 
but the bad news is that Adam was killed, and the Crow Chief, who now has the login information, was falsely arrested and was in prison for the crime. Uh, wow. Yeah, but I've been doing some research online about diets that I can put Theodore on that won't make him try to peck my eyes out, so he'll probably start losing the weight soon. He'll be capable of flying again in no time, although he may still choose not to. Okay, but but putting all that aside for a moment, how did Adam get killed? And, and why did the Crow Chief get blamed? And how is this connected to your arrest? What's going on there? Oh, yes, it's very sad. Adam was killed by a primitive arrow. I'm actually lucky it didn't hit me. If Theodore hadn't lost his balance and toppled off my shoulder and I hadn't stooped to pick him up at exactly that moment, the arrow would have gotten me right in the chest. Wait. Grang, was the arrow that killed Adam like the ones the uh, the Udavald assassins were shooting at you on the raft and in that internet cafe? Well, there are no Udavald assassins. Those were just errant shots from hunters, as I already told you. But yes, the arrow was identical to those other arrows. The bow hunters around here are very inaccurate. And it's so sad because the police, instead of just admitting that Adam's death was a hunting accident, as it obviously was, decided that it must have been the Crow Chief because who would be more likely to kill Adam with a bow and arrow than an Indian chief who happened to be near Adam when he was shot? But you told me that the Crow Chief isn't an Indian at all. Well, that's what he told the authorities. They were like, well, this man was killed by a bow and arrow. The suspect must be an Indian, and you're known as the Crow Chief, so you must be the killer. And then the Crow Chief was like, I'm not even an Indian. And they were like, oh, okay, sorry, Native American. And he said, but I'm not a Native American. And they said, oh, okay, sorry, indigenous person. And then he said, I'm not an indigenous person. And they said, well, then why do you have all these headdresses and tomahawks lying around your house? And then he said, those aren't mine. Look how tiny they are. Those are Sammy's. They're my crows. But they didn't believe him, and they arrested him, and he was found guilty of murder and sentenced to prison. And like I said, he has the login information now. So it's pretty sad how our justice system failed us like this. So assassins tried to kill you, accidentally killed Adam instead, and the Crow Chief is in jail for it. That's two more lives you've ruined. You're correct about everything except for the assassins trying to kill me and anything being my fault. And the same town that banned a mascot for being culturally insensitive toward Native Americans now wrongly arrested and convicted a man because they assumed he was Native American based on flimsy superficial evidence. It's almost like their perspective on racism is completely skewed. And, and wait, I thought Adam was the one with the login information. Why does the Crow Chief have it now? Yeah, well, as Adam was dying with the arrow sticking out of him, but before the cops got there and arrested the Crow Chief, Adam had a few final words for me and the Crow Chief. He said he wanted us to carry on his campaign to reinstate the Jim Crow, and in order to do that, we would need to know the login information for the blog, which was the online headquarters of the whole campaign. So he told both of you. So how come the Crow Chief is the only one who knows it now? Well, I couldn't quite hear what he said, because as he was saying the login information with his dying breath, Theodore was on my shoulder crunching Cheetos right in my ear, and he kind of drowned out everything Adam said. Then Adam died, and before I could get the password and stuff from the Crow Chief, the authorities showed up, arrested him, and whisked him away. I was going to try to ask him for the info in the courtroom at the trial, but neither the prosecution nor the defense wanted me for a witness. But you were an eyewitness. You were in the room when it happened. Well, they both told me I was unreliable and that I would only ruin their cases. How is it possible that I could ruin either of two opposing cases? That's not logical. Besides, dedication should trump reliability when it comes to determining the value of witnesses. But our justice system is broken, so we shouldn't be surprised. Anyway, that's why I had to spend the whole last couple months trying to commit a crime with a short sentence that would get me into prison with the Crow Chief so I could ask him for the login information. Uh, why couldn't you just visit him? Grant, you can't visit people in prison. It's prison. If prisoners could have visitors, prison wouldn't be a deterrent. All right, well, that's wrong, but uh, how is the crime spree gone? Uh, any luck? 
It has been a struggle. I admit I'm not a natural criminal. But I came up with a pretty good idea. I decided that I'd poach a deer. So I borrowed a gun from the Crow Chief's house, where I'm living with Theodore and Sammy right now, and I headed out into the woods to shoot a deer without a license. On my first attempt, I only managed to shoot a stump, which at first I thought was a deer, but as I said, was only a stump. I told the game warden, but he said there was nothing even remotely illegal about shooting a stump. So dedicated as I am, I knew I'd have to try harder. Then the next day, I shot a decoy of a deer. This was still not a deer, but I tried the game warden again. He said that shooting a decoy was not poaching either, but I told him that it could and should be considered attempted poaching. But then he said that there's actually already precedent on that and that it can't be considered attempted poaching because it's impossible to kill an inanimate object and therefore impossible to even attempt to kill one. But I was too dedicated to getting arrested in prison to let that stop me, so the next day, Drent, I did it. I shot a real deer. Okay, so so you were you're you were arrested for that and you're going to trial for shooting a deer without a license. Well, no, because as it turned out, the deer that I shot was a notorious 12-point buck that had been menacing the area for years. He's called Beelzebuck, and everyone in Croton knew about him and feared him. Some thought he was possessed. Others thought he was a ghost. Some knew all the stories but insisted he died years ago. Some insisted he'd never existed at all and that he was just a legend to frighten children. They said this about a deer? What did he do that was so scary? Oh, everything. He ate the corn off the decorative stalks people had on their porches. He got his antlers tangled up in the lights on the Christmas tree downtown and tore them off. He took big bites out of salt licks so they got used up really fast. He mated with does in plain sight of the elementary school windows. And he left tons of hoof prints and wet cement in front of the library. So when I killed him without a license, instead of arresting me for poaching, the town threw me a parade. I was the Grand Marshal, which was a great honor and a big thrill for me, although I was a little disappointed because I seemed even further from getting arrested than I was when I started trying to commit crimes. Amazing how that uh, kind of thing just keeps happening to you. But as usual, it turned out that I had no reason to worry because when I showed up at the parade, they put me on the lead float and I rode out with Sammy on one of my shoulders, which apparently really offended the people watching from the east side of the street, them being so oversensitive about his headdress and all. And I had Theodore on the other shoulder, which apparently sent the people on the west side of the street into a real tizzy. Or actually, it was more like a state of mournful self-reflection. But anyway, the upshot is that they started shouting curses and threats at me, throwing food and trash at me, and generally seeming like they were on the verge of rioting. And then I got arrested for undecorous grand marshalling. Undecorous grand marshalling? Is that even a crime? In Croton it is. It stems from an event in the early days of the town. They were having a parade to celebrate the very first Croton Crow show, and they chose a man named Thomas Housesmaker to be Grand Marshal. Unfortunately for Croton, Thomas was a very creative but very misguided man. He showed up to the parade in a hideously devised crow costume with an extremely ponderous posterior that dragged on the ground, which turned out to have a big fake egg in it, which turned out to have his three-year-old daughter in it. So, as he went by on the float, people were appalled by the sight of his misshapen costume, but they didn't yet realize how bad it was going to get, because at a prearranged spot, Thomas's float stopped, and he struggled down off of it and waddled over to a tall tree by the street, wherein he had built a huge wooden nest high, high up in the branches, which he intended to reach by attaching himself to a series of ropes connected to a pulley system, which his four bickering sons would use to hoist him up to the nest, where he would then lay the egg containing his daughter, who would then hatch, and he would caw in exultation, thereby signaling the end of the performance. But, either because of the sun's bickering, or because the pulley system hadn't been set up properly, or because the combined weight of Thomas and his costume and his daughter and his egg turned out to be too much, Thomas got stuck dangling in the air a good 40 feet off the ground. 
All the people were terrified, mostly since his daughter was in peril, too, and no one knew what else to do. So they called the fire department, which in those days was one truck and just a few men. And while they were distracted with Thomas and his self-inflicted situation, a structure in another part of town caught fire. And it spread quickly, and ultimately most of the town was burned to the ground. So ever since then, they've had very strict rules in Croton against undecorous grand marshalling. Strict rules that I unknowingly violated. The town's furious with me. The judge will certainly hate me. But just to be on the safe side, I'm going to plead innocent, represent myself, and mount a very poor defense to ensure that I get the maximum sentence, which, as I said, is 30 days in jail. Then I'll get imprisoned with the Crow Chief, ask him for the login information, and the next call you get from me will be a call from prison telling you the password. And then I'll serve out the rest of my sentence and go home to meet my new son, a hero. Well, this sounds like a can-miss plan. It's it's the opposite of a can't-miss plan. Uh Uh-oh, Theodore's bothering kids out on the sidewalk again. They wouldn't let me bring him into this internet cafe thing, so I left him leashed to a bench outside. Uh, what, what, what's he doing? He's heaving his fat body around on the pavement after them? Oh, no, he doesn't have the energy for that. He just lies on his side on the curb as if he's dead, and when the kids get close to look at him, he shrieks, You're not the father! and tries to bite them. I did not teach him to say that. He learned it from watching daytime TV, unfortunately. But it's not as bad as it could be, because many times the people he's screaming it at aren't fathers. It is a little distressing for me, though, considering the fact that I definitely am the father of my son. Okay, uh, Grang, well, just, uh, uh, good luck at your... Uh, uh, uh-oh, gotta go. Theodore, no! We blow into our hands, not to dry them, but to warm them, because they are cold and our breath is warm. Nothing is wet. This is simply a matter of temperature. Fall is passing away, winter is stirring in its icy cave, slowly awakening from its nine-month hibernation, which is the same length of time as a human pregnancy, but that's irrelevant. We underdressed. We should have worn gloves, but we did not. Maybe we should swing by a glover's shop. The first Glover's shop we swing by has a sign in the window that reads, No groups of ambiguous number allowed. We move on. The second Glover's shop we swing by has a sign in the window that reads, No ungloved hands allowed. We move on. The third Glover's shop we swing by has a sign in the window that reads, No animosity nor ambivalence toward bats allowed. We troop inside. And there they are, flying here and there, hanging from the ceiling, each of them clutching a pair of fine gloves. You have to ask their permission to try on a pair or purchase a pair, says the proprietor, who is a small man behind a small desk. And they're allowed to deny your request. We have entered the battery. The Maxine Bat Sanctuary prepares for winter. A kindly young man knits scarves for the six bats with the chilliest necks. They're the only ones who want and appreciate scarves. They wear them while hibernating. His scarves for bats have been featured in places such as photographs he hired his younger sister to take on her day off. This year, the scarves will have tracking devices knitted into them so that, in the event that they are stolen from the sleeping bats and dropped into dumpsters or the ocean like last year, they can be easily found, laundered, and returned to the bats. He also knits a pair of leg warmers for the bat with the coldest legs, which is nothing for a bat to be ashamed of. He determines which bat has the coldest legs using his own sense of touch, a method one observer described as probably fallible. The kindly young man learned to knit by thinking critically about it. The captainist bat sanctuary prepares for winter. A large non-pagan bonfire is built in the middle of the sanctuary. It will be kept burning bright throughout the forbidding darkness of the winter months, a symbol of the collective spirit of the bats who are hibernating deep in their cave beneath the snow and frozen ground. The fire is fed with dry wood and anti-bat correspondence from ignorant neighbors who, instead of reacting appropriately to their incredible good fortune, 
actually resent living near a bat sanctuary. The bonfire serves as a reminder to the bat sanctuary volunteers that their work is vital even while the bats sleep, especially while the bats sleep, for they are at their most vulnerable in their sleep, and the volunteers, therefore, must keep the fire burning. It is not a complex metaphor, which is good, because the point is meant to be understood. The leadership at the Captainist Bat Sanctuary believes that the primary goal of a metaphor should be to be understood. Don't laugh. They're helping bats. They're good people. Another thing they do to prepare for winter is winterize their pontoon boat. The Borrow Meal Bat Sanctuary prepares for winter. A sign is hung by the road explaining that the bats have slipped into their torpors wherein they breathe once an hour and their hearts beat ten times a minute. A volunteer in an orange vest stands by the sign to handle any traffic issues that may arise as people swerve or stop to either read the sign or in reaction to reading the sign. A sniper with a tranquilizer gun is camouflaged and hidden in a tree near the sign in case a troublemaker with a contradictory sign appears nearby. A fact checker sits at a computer in an office and checks all of the most reputable bat fact websites on a continuous loop to make certain that the sanctuary's sign is still accurate. A volunteer named Bunt works on a presentation he intends to make to the other volunteers with the intention of convincing them to redo the sign but with no punctuation, a convention of language he finds antiquated, elitist, and difficult. A volunteer named Ramon works on a counter-presentation which is comprised of cute pictures of bats and at the end says, The punctuation should stay. Thank you for your time. The Cavernicus Bat Sanctuary prepares for winter. The volunteers patch the holes in their coats with needles, threads, and scraps of black or very dark blue denim. They patch the holes in their boots with staple guns and scraps of old leather. They patch the holes in their fragile submersibles with rubber cement and waterproof tissue paper. They patch the holes in their belief systems with breathtaking logical leaps and lunges. They patch the holes in their lives by discussing bats, sharing memories of bats, and talking of big bat plans for the spring. They also check on the bats' hibernation sites to make sure they're humid enough. If they don't feel the hibernation sites are humid enough, they work themselves into a panic, call their sanctuary's resident expert down from his vacation house in the Arctic Circle, and he says that no, actually the humidity levels are fine in the hibernation sites. Then he gives each volunteer a slip of paper that says, please let this be the last time you call me for something that is not a problem. The Alawaranek Bat Sanctuary prepares for winter. The old-timers tell the young volunteers not to believe their own eyes, especially in blizzards or on pitch-black sub-zero nights. Those aren't bats who have mistakenly awoken too early and need your assistance that you see heading off into the woods. Those are something much more sinister, and they're luring you to your death. The old-timers understand the impulse to help. They understand the boredom that sets in during hibernation season. They understand that you understand how bad it would be if a bat came out of its torpor too soon, but you have to resist the urge to chase after those things, whatever they are, even if you're dressed for the weather and have a pack full of supplies. The old-timers try to reason with the volunteers. The things don't even look like bats. They walk upright. They have arms and legs and humanoid heads. Frankly, they look like humans, aside from the tattered wings they drag behind them in the snow. They're nine feet tall, young volunteers. When have you ever seen a bat of that size at this sanctuary? Those things have put forth very close to zero effort to fool you. Why would you meet them more than halfway? Just ignore them. Watch videos of real bats. That'll help you keep everything straight in your head. The old-timers tell the young volunteers that they'll show them the corpses of those things after the first thaw. You can usually find a few smashed together inside hollow logs. Then you'll see they definitely aren't bats. The Pimner Bat Sanctuary prepares for winter. Fundraising, 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 fundraising. This bat sanctuary uses the winter months to put the fun in fundraising. They also put the sing in fundraising. They also put the fur in fundraising. And they put the raisin in fundraising. They used to put the fin and the drain in fundraising, but not anymore because there were many, many complaints and the total funds raised suffered as a result. 
The volunteers at the Pimner Bat Sanctuary are the gold standard for bat sanctuary fundraising, and you can tell they know it because they have a gold statue of a bat with black sapphires for eyes on their property that they don't exactly worship, but they do speak very highly of it, and they leave metal pails full of dead bugs in front of it in a way that some might consider sacrificial. Also, the statue's golden body is mostly obscured by its coat of artificial bat fur, which is made of human hair shorn from the heads of penitent pilgrims who travel from miles away wearing blindfolds and finding their way to the statue using only their sense of hearing, which they pretend is like using echolocation, but it isn't. We want to try those gloves on, we cry. We want to buy that pair. We want to buy that pair. But the bats don't give the gloves to us. You have to ask their permission, says the proprietor again, unhelpfully. Can we try those gloves on? We ask the bats. Can we buy them? The bats just keep flapping around and hanging upside down. Do they say anything, we ask the proprietor? Do they just grant permission by dropping the gloves? You have to ask their permission, says the proprietor, unhelpfully. We leave. The battery. texture to it and some like uh, real leather and spice notes to it. Yeah, but don't you think the soy ginger one is pretty special? I mean, how often do you get those taste sensations dancing on your palate? I don't know, man. Let's in the sauce. And, hey, leave that door open so we can get some air moving in here. I don't know if Earl Ray is ever going to fix that air conditioner. And hopefully those kids playing out there won't get too loud. Hey, you kids, get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to say that. Life achievement unlocked. Okay, yeah. Mm. Um, it's in the sauce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's in the sauce. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You got the mics up? Um. Yeah, I mean, mm. Yep, let me test that. Hmm, it's in the sauce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the sauce. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not bad. That's okay. Coming. Cool. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get it going then. All right, here we go. Oh, hold on. Get the chip. Hey, everyone. It's time for your favorite podcast segment about outdoor photography regarding the dog. Hello? Hello in there? Uh, permission to come aboard? <laughs> Whoa, buddy, we're recording in here. I'm I'm looking for Dwayne. Dwayne Lee. Mr. Tristler? Dwayne? Stranger danger? Who are you? Oh, no, 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 Ben. This this is Mr. Tristler. Oh, y- you can call me Steve now. Oh, 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 um, um, Steve. Yeah, yeah. He was my high school art teacher. Uh, Steve, this is uh, this is Ben. What, Dwayne? You didn't tell me you took art classes. Uh, what? It, it was high school, dude. Everyone took art classes. We had to. I'm, I'm so sure, Dwayne. I'm so well, sure. Well, I mean, it's not like I learned anything. Uh, hey, that kind of hurts. Hey, shut, shut up, up, Steve. Well, well, it's not very nice. Well, to... well, well, well what are you doing here, Mr. Tr- uh, I, mean, I mean, Steve, what, what are you doing here? Well, I was just downstairs at Earl Ray's shop getting some bait for a little fishing trip tomorrow, and I asked him what this singing was upstairs, and he said it was an art show being recorded or something, and when I asked who was doing it, he said that this tenant and his friend Dwayne Leesman, so then I just had to come up and see my old student teaching art. Oh, so, so you think you can just waltz in here and judge us on how good we are art teaching? We don't recognize your authority here. 
No high school art teacher is going to tell us what good art uh, teaching is. Well, uh, uh, well no, that, that's not well, exactly... Wait, 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 wait. Ben, I suppose you pinned all your hopes and dreams on your star student over here that he would go forth and carry on the noble tradition of high school art teaching, and you, you have been wondering and hoping that someday Dwayne would... Star student? Uh, Dwayne? Uh, I don't think... Uh, hey, hey, hey. That hurts. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, Dwayne. It's it's not like that. It's it's just that. Well, y- you know, you weren't exactly the most uh, attentive student. You you always seem to be a little distracted. Ha! See, see, Dwayne already knew that there was nothing he could be taught by some lame art teacher, and he. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, he he seemed very interested in all my projects and stuff, and. He did. He did hand in a lot of work. Uh, it's well. He just kind of daydreamed a lot, I guess. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably right. I I can't really remember a lot about what you talked about in class. So, what period was that again? A fifth. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, fifth period. What happened in fifth period? Uh, art class. I know. I know that. I mean, what, what's so special about it? Why is why is Dwayne staring off into space like that? Uh, I don't know. Dwayne, hey, huh? hey, huh? Oh, uh, sorry. What, what's up with fifth period? Uh, our class. Oh. All right, you two. I've had enough of this, Steve. This is our podcast. You can't just barge in here and try to get in on our action. And Dwayne, what are you doing, waxing nostalgic about some lame art class? I mean, come on, man. I'm the only hey, artist. Hey, wait, that- wait, 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 Ben. Mister, Mister Steve knows art. He, he can contribute. I mean, he could be a guest. Oh, well, well, that sounds like what, fun. No, what? No. Oh, no. Oh, no. That is just what our audience needs. Another art high school teacher from art. I, just stomping their... No. He's not going to tell them how to do bad art. He's not going to tell our listeners anything. I mean, what can he possibly teach them? How to glue macaroni onto construction paper? Wow. Why don't you tell us how you really feel, Ben? All right, listen here, Sigmund Freud. No, 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 Ben, Ben. Steve used to teach photography in his class. What? Uh, it's true, I did. Yeah, yeah, he used to teach us how to use those uh, those old film cameras, and, and we did composition and, and developed our own film with, with coffee, right? And, and stuff, and... Yep, and uh, still teach the old caffeinol developing techniques. Don't you see, Ben? Steve can be a guest. He knows stuff about photography, too. Well, uh, so, so you guys are photographers, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Um, yep, I that's mean, us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, what a surprise, Dwayne. I mean, I would have never thought that you would have ended up working with photography at all. I mean, you weren't really very good at it. You, you didn't seem to like it at all. And you always talked about pursuing other professions, uh... Like your athletics. Sports? Dwayne? Yeah, right. Well, I mean... (laughs) I mean, all I used to talk about was Vivian's gym class and whatever was going on in that gym class across the hall. (laughs) Well, I mean, but art, man, and and, and photography. Wait, 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 wait. Vivian? Uh, Yeah, Vivian uh, Callahan. She was our gym teacher. Why does that name sound familiar? Because it's an extremely common female name in North America? No, 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 that's not it. It's, uh, um, I, uh... I, I think we got it. <laughs> got it! You wrote that song about her! That that rock song, or mountain song! Mount Vivian, that's it! What? Uh, no, I mean, that, that was, uh, that was... Uh, yeah, 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 Mount Vivian, that song that G-Honey wrote. Yeah, that's it. G-Honey? Mountain? <clears throat> you know what, Steve? You should ask Ben about his film photography experience and... In the Alps. Really? The Alps? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. He he took a, a glass 8x10 wet plate negatives uh, high up in the Swiss Alps. Wow. Really? Like, like how? How did you keep that stuff? I mean, the temperatures and the logistics of, I mean, the chemicals, the frost. Man, I, I, I didn't even think that was possible to do. I mean, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must have been so hard to do. I mean, how many people did you have helping you wrangle all that gear? And did you, like, use propane heaters and regulate the temps? Uh, Oh, no, no, no. Ben was all by himself. It was just him and the gear. Really? 
Of course. Of course. Um, look, look, that's, that's not the point. We're getting way off the point. The point is, I mean, the takeaway here is... is um, Dwayne is in love with the gym teacher. What? Uh, well, not... You are too. Hey, Steve, ask him about her shapely rock formations. Hey, you're talking about my wife. What? Ooh. Oh, um, um, you married her? Yes, I did. Uh, when? About five years ago. No chance you guys break up, right? Now, what kind of a question is that, Dwayne? Pretty, pretty legit one, if you ask me. You shut up! Oh, all right, l- l- listen here, Steve-O. This is my apartment and our show, and right now, your work really needs improvement, and I wouldn't want to give you a D on this project, so maybe you should take this home and work on it over the weekend, huh? Maybe you, uh... What? Y- you can't grade me on anything. Oh, oh, can't I? Well, maybe you would want to take that up with the principal? Perhaps after school, maybe in detention? What? What? Whatever. You two, Dwayne, you... you never mind, just... I'm out of here. <laughs> Bye. See you at the pep rally. <laughs> Bye, Mr. Trisler. Well, <laughs> that was probably the best art class you ever been to, huh, Dwayne? <sighs> yeah. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. Regarding the dawn. At Gentleman's Mills, Black Friday is a state of mind. Yes, at Gentleman's Mills, even a gray Tuesday or a sickly yellow Sunday can be Black Friday. At Gentleman's Mills, the deals are always worth trampling your neighbors to reach. But in honor of everyone else's Black Friday having just come and gone, Gentleman's Mills would like to highlight some of their most astounding deals. Prepare for value so valuable you'll think it's invaluable. Number one, three wishes. For a fraction of the cost of a real genie, Gentleman's Mills will grant the buyer up to three wishes from a pre-approved list of up to four wishes. Number two, corn on the cub. If you can pry this corn from this cub, we'll practically give it to you. Number three, kid on the cub. If you wrestle this young goat from the cub's jaws, he's yours forever. You may nurse the kid back to health and then milk, eat, comb, shear, polish, praise, worship, sell, or mock the goat depending on your subsequent preferences. Number four, two for the price of one. For a limited time, Gentleman's Mills customers can purchase our numeral two for what you'd usually pay for our numeral one. Number five, swimming pool removal. Purchase a Gentleman's Mills swimming pool and we'll take it right back out again for free within 20 minutes after installation is complete. Number six, partially eaten mountain bike tires. These discounted mountain bike tires have been partially eaten by either man or beast, but don't let that prevent your purchase. They were never edible in the first place. Number seven, Reptile Nighty. This sexy sleepwear for your snake didn't sell particularly well, and the only reason we can think of is that it cost $1 too much. That minor flaw has now been rectified. Celebrate by buying this product. Number eight, Reptile Nightly. This periodical documents the Gentleman's Mill's co-founder's nightly musings on our scaled underfoot friends. Most have an illustration. If you can't afford a top-shelf magazine, we've got your back with Reptile Nightly. Note, if we get behind, we'll catch up with writing, printing, and sending you a bunch of issues to return your delivery average to one issue per night as soon as we get a chance. Number 9. Frowsy Franks. These, the frowsiest of Franks, come with built-in bun to keep your grill bill beneath budget. Number 10, Pathological Liar. Take him off our hands for cheap, cheap, cheap. We're sick of him. Number 11, Hamburger Hinderer. You won't find a cheaper hamburger-affecting product on the market anywhere. Number 12, Avalanche of Value. In this literal avalanche, the tons and tons of snow represent value. Number 13, Naughty Potty Pet Potty Trainer. This plastic dog plops everywhere except in the provided turlet, teaching your own pet not to even attempt to dump in the turlet. Go in the backyard, boy. Number 14, Adorable or Affordable. This item forces you to choose between looking cute or affording life's nicer things. Number 15, Grapes. These grapes come in a sickly gray color, and so we give them to you for a big discount. The smell, once bitten, made one gentleman pass out. Number 16, Job from the Ashes. 
The gentleman craft an apology letter explaining why you now know that wearing a t-shirt with a client's HIPAA information printed on it is contrary to something or another and that you really need this job to afford life's nicer things. Number 17, engagement ring. No engagement ring is made out of more materials than the gentleman's mill's engagement ring. Number 18, Dizzy Dave's Dust Bunnies. Can't afford big name models for your product launch? Hire the Dust Bunnies. They're not experienced models, but they are alive. Number 19, Purple Flavor Ices. You don't have too many yet. Number 20, Flaws. This special magical dental floss, once used, reveals a flaw in the flosser that the flosser would prefer to keep repressed or forgotten. Flaws is hard to read. Voted too insulting by Dental Boy magazine. Number 21, Champion Rooster. This champion rooster is so cheap because, well, he's the champion of something very, very bad. A competition no rooster should ever want to win. Nevertheless, he won it. He's the champ. Number 22, Bargain Bin Brainwash. You'll become convinced that some very impractical ideas are self-evident, but you won't have to pay as much to get you there. Number 23, Total Recall Bargain Edition. The case is empty. Number 24, Knee Pad 3-Pack. Please photograph yourself and or your friends using all knee pads for the discount. If you put one knee pad in the closet, you might as well send all of them back. Number 25, Bargain Basement. No corner left uncut. This above-ground basement distinguishes itself from a shoddy shed with the assistance of cognitive dissonance. Number 26, Zero Money Down Tree Bark. We'll ship it as soon as you submit a notarized attestation to the fact that your municipality or sovereign nation has no usury laws. Number 27, Thinness. Wouldn't it be great if Gentleman's Mills could sell you this? Purchase of this product is acknowledgement that it would indeed be great if Gentleman's Mills could sell thinness. Vote with your dollar. And number 28, Gentleman's Mills Seasonal Name Your Price Promotion. Simply name your price. We're talking any price. No price is too inappropriate. We'll ship you an item of commensurate value. We've solved the case of the other dimensional diary. I suppose we should be getting you back to your home planet. What are you kidding? Didn't you hear? Trump won on my home planet. Oh, right. Well, I guess you're in the market for a new home planet. Get in the portal hopper. We'll run some diagnostics and find somewhere suitable. All right. What have you got? Let's see. Okay. Here's one where Trump didn't win. Hey, great. I mean, as long as I can live in a country where they didn't elect a president who advocated for waterboarding torture, even if it doesn't help gain information because, quote, they deserve it anyway. Oh. Well, you can have your wish, I guess. But? But the president of this earth does put another form of unnecessary torture to use. And what's that? He makes them listen to this on repeat for hours, sometimes days on end. So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas, I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. Hey, what about uh, that universe we vacate in where Jennifer Lawrence is president and they have hot dog, beer, and sushi trees? Well, ah, oh no. Apparently you just can't please middle America. They got fed up with Jennifer's adorable antics and lovable every woman qualities. There was a coup. What? Yeah, they ousted her. Uh, and, of course, they repealed Jenny Care, which gave citizens the right to affordable access to the hot dog, beer, and sushi trees. 
out of spite. Go figure. Uh, how about just an Earth with a president who knows what sexual assault is? Huh, let me see what I can find here. Well, this Earth's America elected CeeLo Green. Remember that? How he was famous on, like, one of the number one TV shows? And then he tweeted that shit three years ago? And how no one's heard from him since? Better days. Uh, how about a president who doesn't use racist and insensitive epithets? Um, this Earth, they just elected that kid who transferred into your school in sixth grade, who started dating the girl in your class who happened to be half Japanese, and when you went up to him in gym class to ask him how it was going, he just replied by saying, can you believe I'm dating a... True story. Yeah, people are fucking horrific. How about somewhere where they elected someone who just, uh, you know, ran on a platform of peace? Oh, here you go. Earth 727. This is a good one. They elected the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's great. Oh, nope. They lynched him within the first hundred days. Figures. Uh, one where one of his transition team doesn't refer to feminists as... Should be easy enough. Earth 9,457. Ugh. It's that kid from your 6th grade class again. Uh, how about one where the VP doesn't openly deny the negative health effects of smoking? Earth 1875, Vice President Gene Calment. Uh, who's that? One of those ladies who lived to 120-something, everyone's aunts post a Facebook meme about at some point because yay for keeping on keeping on or something. She smoked from age 21 to 117. A VP who doesn't want to roll back women's rights to the Stone Age? Earth 1960. Eh, again, a technicality. President Fred Flintstone, because Hanna-Barbera cartoon characters inhabit this reality, where they're real people, and President Flintstone is just fine with the standing of women's rights in his reality, where his wife wears pearls to do housework, and where, every night, she serves him a hot plate of giant mastodon ribs, and where all children are a gift from the benevolent animator gods, and any discussion of contraception never would have gotten past the censors anyway. Hmm... How about a president who doesn't brag about his size during the primaries? Ugh, Earth 666. Ugh, President Scott Walker. Well, yeah, because that dude is well aware that everybody already knows he's got a tiny one. Maybe a president who doesn't shun the press? Earth 49, they elect... Thomas Pinchon. Just, just any planet where the president doesn't want to build a wall. Uh, Earth 1979, President Roger Waters? Hmm. Oh, hey, look here, Casey. Here's one where Bernie won the election. Oh. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but look closer. Uh, That universe's timeline is eight years ahead of ours. You know how pissed middle America was after eight years of a black man being in office. Imagine how pissed they are following that with another eight years being governed by a socialist Jew. Good lord, you're right. In 2024, they let something called Mecha-Trump run for office. Oh, it, of course, it wins. And, yep, it's just a giant robot with circular saws for hands and Trump's brain implanted in it. Great. Guess it just goes to show you. Things could be worse. Shut up, Casey. No, they couldn't. The outfit of a day is the seat of your porous pants, soaked through to the skin from the damp moss of the log you thought it would be a good idea to sit on. Nice going. You thought this would be the perfect time to take a hike through the long swamp, 
before the rainy season, as the ground is beginning to freeze and the bedflowers are dormant. But you let yourself forget that the long swamp is always as wet as it is long. It's also as dry as it is wide, which is to say, not very. You can actually see the clearing to your left, and the forest a few yards to your right. But in the long swamp, the only way to go is forward. And you wore jeans. What are you, a idiot? Close your eyes. Lie down. Relax. Breathe very, very, very well. You open your eyes to find yourself listening to a beautiful song, a peaceful song, its serene melody drifting here and there, gently extolling restfulness, stresslessness. You listen. You listen. Isn't that nice? It's a song you've heard many times before, and yes, you've enjoyed it. But have you really appreciated it? Appreciated its ethereal qualities, its otherworldliness? Have you allowed it to caress your heart? Have you let it pluck delicate tears one by one from your ducts? Have you given it explicit permission to soundtrack one of your famous total zone outs? You listen. Isn't that nice? You acquiesce to the song's desire to stir you. You are stirred by the song. Stirred to action? Nay, stirred to comfort. Your mind, an inquisitive pink creature tucked cozily inside a little skull-shaped bone house, also known as your skull, idly tries to identify individual instruments as the song plays on. Is that a glockenspiel, you wonder? Is that a zither? Is that a glass harmonica or perhaps a gravichord? Or maybe that's what's known as a snare drum. Your brain's knowledge of the names of a few obscure instruments is on full display, and you imagine a crowd of people demanding you autograph their copies of a pamphlet you wrote called Some Names of a Few Obscure Instruments. Is that a synthesizer, you wonder? You allow that speculation to serve as your grand finale, and after imagining that the standing ovation eventually dies down and the authorities start arresting people for excessive clapping, you listen. Isn't that nice? This song reminds you of a story you once heard about a song. You don't remember much more about the story beyond that. And actually, now that you think about it, it may not have been a story about a song, it may have just been a song. And actually, now that you think about it, it definitely was a song, not a story about a song. And actually, now that you think about it, it was this exact song. Yes, this song definitely reminds you of this song, and that's good. You like this song, and therefore you like being reminded of it. It's not that hard, people. The way this song reminds you of this song reminds you of the time you were eating a pear, and the pear reminded you of a pear, and the second bite of the pear reminded you of the first bite of the pear, and that second bite of pear caused you to be so overwhelmed with nostalgia for the first bite of pear that you looked off into the middle distance while chewing and tried your absolute darndest to appear solemn. You listen. Isn't that... You have some thoughts about music in general. What is it about music that makes it so important and meaningful to you in a way that it clearly isn't to most other people? Why is it that you feel music so much more deeply than anyone else? It's not because you are better in any way, you'd never say that, nor do you mean to imply that you're special, you're just different, in a way that other people are perfectly within their rights to consider cool, if they so desire, but you're not saying Anyone is obligated to be impressed by the fact that you're so sensitive to music and that it's so much more evocative for you than it is for most people and it's so much more important for you than it is for other people. And you try to express this to other people, but they just don't seem to understand. 
You make regular announcements about how you wouldn't be able to get through your week without music, and how the only thing making you feel better is certain music, and how you die without music, but still, people just don't seem to understand. Why is it so hard for them to grasp? You don't know. Like, take right now, for example. You're lying here relaxing with your eyes closed, and you're envisioning yourself listening to the song, and you are visibly moved by it. And you wish, you just wish, everyone you know could see you listening to this song right now, and that they could see how you're connecting to the song in a way that probably only a handful of people who have ever lived have ever connected to any song. And this happens to you all the time. You shed a tear for everyone in your life who is missing this opportunity to witness how intensely you experience music compared to them. Because maybe, just maybe, if they could see you right now, if they could see how intensely you're experiencing this song, then the next time they say, this song is kind of bland, and you counter with, no, actually, this song is brilliant, they'd realize that they should concede to the opinion of someone who truly cares about music much more than them because you commune with music on a much higher level than them. You listen. Isn't that You decide you'd like to dance to this song. You decide you want to really let your hair down and just let the music move your body that you assume will be adequate to the task. You start with a series of arm departures and hip warps. Then it's time for some foot acknowledgers and shoulder hovers. Now you're cooking, as they say in America, when someone begins to dance, whether that dancing is good or not. Next up are a series of finger tumbles and head wrangles, and then, feeling well and truly saucy now, you execute a very provocative butt cower. And now you've finished cooking, as they say in America when someone stops dancing. In some regions of America, they shorten this to, now you've cooked. This song has inspired you. If you love music so much, why shouldn't you write a song? You decide you should give it a shot. You buy an acoustic guitar online and it's delivered to you promptly and with minimal damage to the neck, body, strings, and case. Minimal damage is better than maximal damage, but it's worse than the absolute minimum of damage, which is zero damage. You send the guitar back and wait for a replacement. While you wait, you start working on some lyrics, which turns out to be easy until you realize you're not writing original lyrics at all. You're writing a confession to a crime you didn't commit. You crumple up these lyrics and throw them into your estate's garbage wing. The next day, your replacement guitar arrives. Undamaged, yes, but not a guitar. They sent you a guitarist and said, All right, you say, even better. And you go back to writing lyrics while the guitarist noodles around on his guitar, which is slightly more damaged than your original guitar, but still basically functional. You write these lyrics. Why do I know? What can I know? Who is the one who sees? What are these? What are these? You have achieved the universal through specificity, the aim of all good songwriters. The guitarist accompanies you as you sing and you hit a note so high that the glasses in your cupboard melt and fuse together into one giant glass and lump which no longer holds water. So now in order to drink from your glasses, you have to pour water over the glass and lump and then hastily lick it before all the water runs off. You. 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 Listen. Isn't this nice? What is this song? You finally ask. What's it called? Who made it? It's Glycerine by Bush. And now open your eyes and take the peace of listening to Glycerine by Bush with you this month, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the 24th episode of Out of All Doors. 
I'm Adam Durant, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, Casey By, Grang Lynch, Chris Nichols, Ben Bird, Steve Schistler, KT McVeigh, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By, Chris Nichols, and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at HugePop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, HugePop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those, too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. And also, extra thanks to Chris Nichols for putting all the previous episodes of Out of All Doors and One Man's World on YouTube. They're at the channel Huge Pop, written as one word. We'll be back in a month with episode 25 of Out of All Doors.